Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU, as always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian at the Boulder Bookstore. And Arsene, we're here live in the bookstore in front of a sold-out crowd for an incredibly popular Colorado author. So I'm going to let you introduce her. Who have we been reading for the month of August? We've been reading Kali Fiardo Anstein. And uh, we had her on the show earlier for her book of short stories, Sabrina and Karina. And um, this is a great novel, Woman of Light, and we're going to dive into it where it's really a novel of a family that stretches from the late 1860s, I believe is the first scene, and up into the 1930s, middle of the 1930s, which covers several generations with lots of amazing and colorful characters. And so we're going to dive into this. There's great stories of Denver, the history of Denver, it all set here in Colorado. Kelly, it's so great to have you back at the bookstore and back at the Radio Book Club. Welcome and congratulations on this epic book. And it spans multiple generations, I think about five generations in total. But the titular Woman of Light is Luz, appropriately titled Luz, who we first encounter in Denver in the 1930s. And I know she's based on an aunt of yours, Aunt Lucy, and so much of this novel is really part of the fabric of your family. So tell us who your Aunt Lucy was and why you wanted to write this book. Yeah, so I grew up in this incredibly rich multicultural family from Denver. My family now has been in the Denver area for over a hundred years, and uh, the new babies in the family, they're fifth generation Denverites. So my Auntie Lucy was my great grandmother Esther's sister. And she lived until I was 25 years old and she died in her 90s and she was our matriarch. She was the keeper of our stories. She passed down how to cook really beautiful enchiladas and tortillas and green chili and beans. I'm like, oh, I'm like remembering it right now. Um, and she lived on Galapago Street on Denver's West Side. And she had a really big, beautiful life, but her life was also marked by a lot of tragedy. And I knew from the time I was a little girl that I wanted to take some of our family stories that she told and I wanted to put them inside the novel because I'm a voracious reader. I worked as a bookseller for over 10 years. And one of the things that I really felt was lacking in novels was stories about people like us. So that was my Auntie Lucy and I wanted Woman of Light to honor her and her legacy. One of the most interesting things about the book, I think, there's so many great characters, and we'll get into them, but where you have Luz is in 1930s Denver. And, you know, I've heard some stories of that era, but the way you write about it, it's a real revelation. Maybe you could tell people about the political climate, what, what the city was like in, say, 1933, 34, 35. Yeah, so the reason why the book is set in the 1930s is because that's when my family all sort of came together. So my great-grandfather Alfonso, he immigrated from the Philippines in the 1930s. And my, my Auntie Lucy, she was going to dances and she was meeting her partner who was a mariachi trumpeter. And they were intermingling with Greek Americans and everybody was sort of coming to this new city, so to speak. Um, they had lived in the mining camps of Southern Colorado and they just wanted to make a better life for themselves. Their father had abandoned the family. He was a Belgian miner. He never married their mother. And so when they got to the city, 
they, they thought they were going to find all these opportunities and all this way to make money and make something of themselves, but they found that their lives were really restricted and oppressed by racism and segregation in Denver. Um, we all know that the Ku Klux Klan was very prominent in the 1920s in Denver, but in this novel, I'm looking at the 1930s because a lot of what I'm trying to say is that the Klan never left us, and we know that to be true to this day. Um, they may have changed, they may have called themselves different things, but Denver in the 1930s, it's, it's really trying to find its identity at the same time while redlining and segregating and keeping oppressed people pushed to the margins of society. I mean, I found it fascinating that it is set in history, the 1930s Denver and then the late 1800s in Southern Colorado, but there are so many contemporary themes and we can see how the lines of all these issues, racial injustice, economic inequality, how the two things are connected, still so pervasive in the city of Denver in 1922, or excuse me, in 2022, and there was um, a sentence in there when they were talking, I can't remember, I think it was Luz and maybe Lizette, who's our cousin who I loved, um, talking about speculators coming into their neighborhood. And I think Lou said, why, why would speculators come here? You know, flash forward 90 years and we're seeing the gentrification of all these neighborhoods that you talk about that play home to all of these families. I know you've been writing this book for 10 years. This yeah. isn't something that just came about. It's, and, and you can tell there's so much love and passion and care in this book. But were you surprised with how contemporary so much of it is especially when we look at what happened two summers ago in the city of Denver, you know, in response to the murder of George Floyd and, and the ongoing issues. You know, I think the honest answer is no, I'm not surprised because I, my family has faced racism their entire existence in the city. And so while I was writing the book, I was people in my family were still experiencing some of the same kinds of racism that the elders were experiencing in the 1920s. You know, I, I love Boulder, I think it's really beautiful, but I actually have a very visceral memory of being told to go back to my own country. I was trying to see a broken social scene sh like show and I got into an argument with some, some young white people and one of them said, go back to your own country. And the other, the other kid said, whoa man, like come on. And that was like 10 years ago. So the, the fact that it, this novel became very timely it's unfortunate, but I think if you live a marginalized existence, if you're from an oppressed class, you know that this is reality and this is truth. And I think those readers are really coming to this novel in a big way. So those, those themes are brought up beautifully um, and entertainingly because your, your characters are so interesting and your story is so interesting. And I was wondering if you could talk about Diego, for, for one, um, Simodeca, Simo, how do you say her? Simodicia. Simodicia. Talk about her, and then maybe after you talk about her a little bit, maybe you could read a short passage as well. Yeah, yeah. So all the characters in Women of Light have sort of an ancestral mirror in my family. So Luce is based on my Auntie Lucy. Lizette is based sort of on my Grandma Esther. She's sort of a, a outspoken whippersnapper of a character. Um, and then there's Diego. Diego is Luce's older brother. He's a snake charmer. He really likes the ladies. And he also works as a factory lineman at Gates Rubber Factory. Um, Diego, I think, is inspired by, first of all, I had a Tio who was a snake charmer. 
he died before I was born. <laughs> but I heard so many stories about him that it was like he was really with me. Um, but I think he's also inspired by some of my uncles who are maybe in their 40s and 50s today. I grew up with them having a lot of beautiful girlfriends <laughs> and um, just looking up to them. And they were sort of my first example of feminine sexuality. Um, they all wore red lipstick and big hoop earrings in the 90s. Um, so Diego, when I was working on him, I finally like the male character of the womanizer can be a stereotype, but I really feel very connected to Diego. And people are surprised when I say, I actually think that some of his characteristics are closest to my own personality. Um, but I wanna talk a little bit about Simodicia Salazar-Smith. Simodicia came to me sort of in a dream vision. Uh, my whole life, I grew up in the shadow of Lookout Mountain. We all know about Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and Annie Oakley and the sharpshooters. But I had a dream about a Mexican sharpshooter. And I saw this woman with long, beautiful black hair. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's the grandma. She's the grandma of everybody and woman of light. Um, so I want to read a little bit about this gunslinger, uh, Simodicia Salazar-Smith. And so the first time we meet her, it is the late 1800s, and uh, Luce's grandfather, Pidre, he's looking for a star entertainer for his theater that he has in the Lost Territory, which is Southern Colorado. At first, it was difficult to see what drew their steady gazes of the serene crowd. Their eyes were wells of concentration and their faces gleamed with gratitude as if visited upon by a saint. Pidre heard the sonorous crack of gunfire. High on a wooden platform, she was a stately woman in a beaded gown, glistening in white fringe, her black hair braided down her back. Simodicia Salazar Smith looked into a shard of broken glass like lightning in her left hand. And then with her long rifle aimed over her right shoulder, she shot. What's she shooting at, Mickey? Pidre asked, dumbfounded. Mickey chuckled. He lightly elbowed Pidre. Watch, she's reloading. Simodicia leaned over her perch and waved to the crowd. They cooed as if in love. One of Jack Wesley's workers had stepped into the ring. The man wore black and carried a metal bucket. Simodicia locked eyes with him and seemingly mouthed a countdown. Then, as if terrified by her aim, the man tossed the bucket into the air and ran for his life, water splashing around him in a dome. The man in black reappeared and sifted his hands through the sawdust until he held up a gold coin with a bullet hole at its center. The crowd gasped with delight. Simodicia laughed and flipped her braid. He planted that coin, shouted an audience member. What a joke, I want my money back, you crooks, a bunch of charlatans. The man wavered, pissed drunk near the left side bleachers. In his right hand, he clasped a tin cup overflowing with Jack Wesley's watery beer. Mickey chuckled. Oh Christ, have some faith. He patted Pidre on the back. I would not test this one. Pidre watched Simodistia's reaction with great interest. She winced as the man continued shouting from below. Some of the crowd yelled for him to quiet down. They threw their kettle corn, they hushed him and moved seats. 
But the drunken man did not stop, and Simodicia seemed taken out of her next trick. Her face flickered with annoyance as, she, as her already sparse audience stood to leave. Simodicia twisted over the ledge, locked her skirted legs along the side, unraveled herself upside down, and dangled like an elegant insect. She aimed her rifle, and she shot. The drunken man's beer erupted across his face and chest. He screamed, shrill and childlike, and as he fumbled with his hands over his body, he shouted, the bitch shot at me. <laughs> That's author Callie Fajardo Anstein reading from her new novel, Woman of Light. And there's such carnival, you know, as a theme in there. We have Obviously, Simodicia, who's the sharpshooter, but we have um, Diego, who's a snake charmer, but Lose herself, the woman of light, she reads tea leaves. Mm -hmm. And you talked earlier about how your Aunt Lucy, who was really the inspiration for the story, was the keeper of the stories. Lose is the keeper of the stories, but she's also the seer, so she's a clairvoyant. And I loved how you wove her, her visions and her dreams as the connectivity between all of the generations in the story. You do a wonderful job of going from Denver 1930s to the uh, Southern Colorado in the you know, late 1800s. And a lot of times Luz and her visions helps us navigate all of that. T talk a little bit about how, how you incorporated her visions and, and her clairvoyancy. Yeah. So. My Auntie Lucy also had the sight, and I think that's very common in a lot of our families. There's sort of a family member who has dream visions or who could predict something bad is about to happen. I actually remember one time I woke up and I heard my sister screaming, and I called her, no answer, no answer, and she had been in a car accident, they hit a deer. And at the very moment I heard her screaming, that's when the accident happened. So I come from a family where seers are pretty common, and when I was working on this character, Luce, I thought, okay, well, she's got to make a little bit of extra money. She's doing laundry, but she's also reading tea leaves on the side. And there were moments where suddenly I, as the author, was having these vivid descriptions come to me of the older generation. And at the very beginning of writing this novel, like nine or 10 years ago, I actually did not realize it was Luce. At first I thought, who is seeing all this? Is it me, the omniscient godlike narrator? And then I realized over the years that it actually was loose. And as we go through the novel, her visions start to sort of meld with her reality as we see toward the end that she's actually in two realities at once at some, at some point. I guess, you know, to, to uh, play off of this a little bit, you know, I thought it was very interesting how the story is told chronologically. Because you have a prologue, which is 1868. Then you jump into 1930s, but then you go back at the beginning of each part for maybe a chapter or two to 1890. Mm -hmm. How did you hit upon that? And how much of that is tied to Luz's clairvoyance? Or you know, what went into that decision not to tell it kind of straight chronologically? Because a lot of epic or opuses, as Maeve said, would progress that way. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't really think time is experienced for me in a lot of consciousness um, in a linear fashion. So because my family is so seeped in place in Denver, 
when I look out at Civic Center Park or something, it's my own memories at a 420 celebration, but it's also like my grandpa's memories and the stories he told me about a certain fountain or a certain time that my father went to court um, at, the, at the courthouse. So for me, a lot of my memories of place are just sort of stacked on top of each other. So it never was natural for me to tell a linear story. In fact, this book, when I first turned it in um, a few years ago, because I rewrite my drafts like very obsessively, my editor was like, it's all over the place. Like one chapter is 1868, then we got 1934, then we're back to 1922. And she's like, your reader is going to be very, very lost. So it was an editorial decision that we should open each part with a flashback to the older generation. Um, and I, I really think it's working for a lot of readers, but there's still some readers like, I'm having to keep a map, I'm having to draw notes of a family tree. And to them, I would say, just sort of let the story wash over you, because I think we have this obsessive need to try to follow the linear breadcrumbs, and that's not going to work necessarily in a novel like Woman of Light. Yeah, I would agree. It wash over you. And then if you want to go back, read it, obviously, for second, third, fourth time, which uh, I know I'm going to be doing as well, and, and take the notes then. But the language just washes over you. It's so beautifully told. But that sense of place, and it was the same in your previous uh, book, your set of short stories, Sabrina and Karina, there's a really strong sense of place. Obviously, Denver in the 1930s. But I want to talk about the Southern Colorado part. And it's described in the book as the lost territory. And you talk about the mining camps, the encroachment of the mines. And I knew this was happening in the book before Ludlow, but then I knew Ludlow was coming. And you can you see the threads of the social unrest, the discrimination, the racism that's happening there. And so it was so interesting to read about that time period just ahead of you know something, the Ludlow massacre that, that's so well known. But talk about that. Why was it called the Lost Territory? And, and talk a little bit about your own family's connection in that time period to that part of Colorado. Yeah. So. In this novel, we have the Lost Territory, and the Lost Territory is populated by people who are indigenous to the land. So we have Pueblo people, we have Navajo people, Apache people, um, but we also have Greek Americans, Italian Americans, um, Anglos, and people are all sort of coming together to work in different industries in Southern Colorado, um, primarily the mining industry. So I mentioned earlier that my great-grandmother's father was a Belgian miner, and this was really sort of my family's first experience with Europeans. Um, before that, they had only been in their own communities. Um, so that abandonment was a huge scar for my family. Um, my Auntie Lucy, when she would tell the story about him leaving the family, she would slip into this fake French accent uh, because he never taught his children his language or anything like that. So I really wanted a common communal narrative that we could attach ourselves to. So many Hispanos, Chicanos, Latinos come from this background of Southern Colorado, Northern New Mexico, and we're here. We're all over the Denver metro area. We're into Wyoming and Idaho and California. We're all over. We're everywhere. Um, but we don't have a common story. So when I was working on this novel, I really wanted to give us an origin myth in a way. Um, and it's called The Lost Territory because, as we know, this was the territory lost to Mexico, or lost to the United States from Mexico. But more than that, I wanted a sense of lost in time. I wanted people to feel that, okay, 
Is it, am I lost in space? Am I lost somewhere else out there? And there's a lot more magic that happens in the lost territory compared to Denver in the novel. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil anything because it happens a little later in the book, is one of the encroachments on the lost territory is Marie Curie and you know searching for radium. And like you say, you feel like you're out of time. You feel like you're in this magical place where Marie Curie feels like it's kind of the beginning of our age. And I thought that was really interesting how you played that out. Yeah, so I... I actually, so we have like a town called Radium, Colorado, and like I had not known that Colorado was like the number one supplier of radium before it got moved over um, to Africa when it was first, the element was first discovered. And I learned that all through the research of this novel. But one of the really cool connections that has come out of writing Woman of Light is there's a Japanese novelist, Erika Kobayashi, and her novel Trinity, Trinity, Trinity was just translated into English and published um, by Astra House last month. And her work, she deals with radium and radiation trauma in Japan. And we, she just sent me one of her graphic novels that she wrote called Luminous. And there's a company in Woman of Light called Luminous Corporation. And she actually said that the, the manga was originally titled Children of Light. So because of our connection to radium, I now have this connection to a Japanese novelist. It's just incredible the ways that we can find community um, connections that way. So in the, in the Denver section, um, one of the backstories that's going on is this uh, police killing, which really echoes. And, and um, Luz gets involved with that. She's working with a character named David, who's a Greek character. It's interesting, the, the Greek characters in the book seem to straddle the two worlds. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they've got one, step, one foot or more in the white world, but they're um, dealing with and working with um, Mexicans, indigenous people. But that, that killing is, is, is kind of the background, but then starts becoming more and more into the foreground, and you're showing the unrest that was happening in Denver. And, Maybe, was that was that inspired by a real story in the 30s? Was it a common type of thing that was happening in the? Probably was, but yeah. was it that that would elicit so much protest that happens in your book? Yeah, I mean, as we know, of course, uh, minority men being murdered, especially black men, by the police is common. Um, it's common today. So it's been common since the founding of this country. The country was founded on indigenous genocide. So it's very common that killings like this would exist. Um, but when I was doing research, I, I found uh, references to lynchings, to lynch mobs, to all kinds of violences that, violence that has been covered up in a way. Uh, but one of the things that I found really interesting was the protest movements of the 1930s. So when I first turned in a draft, my editor said, I don't know, why were they holding up signs asking to stop police brutality, fair wages, stop evictions? This seems too contemporary. And I actually gave her a photograph from 1933, and it was a mixed crowd, black, white, Chicano, Asian Americans. It was a totally mixed crowd. And I said, no, look at this. We have been doing this for almost 100 years in this country, fighting for the same rights, trying to get equality, trying to get safety for our bodies. Um, and she said, oh, OK, as long as you have receipts, like <laughs> you can put it in here. Um, but I think in some ways it feels just so contemporary. 
um, until you start looking back at the history and you realize it's just we go in cycles and we hide our history and then it comes back up and then we hide it again. One of the characters is a radio host that people start to listen to, which I really, uh, well, as a radio person myself, I, 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 that really resonated with me. Was that based on anybody back in the 1930s? There was somebody that all the communities were tuning into who was really you know, fanning the flames of the discontent in the social movement. I bet you like Leanne Jacob. Um, yeah, so, um, I actually have an interesting story about where Leanne Jacob came from. So I actually, I love him. He's like one of my favorite characters in the novel. Um, he was in World War One. He um, he's an amputee, he only has one leg, and he's got this really popular radio broadcast, and he's very communist-leaning. Um, so a lot of that was inspired by my conversations with the Denver historian uh, Phil Goodstein. Um, he helped me a lot with a lot of the socialist history. Uh, but my little sister, she works at, she, at the time she worked at Peter's Chinese Cafe down at 13th and Colorado area, and there was this old man that would come in and his name was Leon, and he had been a World War II vet, and he was a Jewish man, and he asked my little sister, he said, because my family is also, we have Jewish um, heritage as well, he said, does she have any Jewish characters? And I, my sister came and asked me, and I said, no, but I really need to put some in. And I said, well, what did Leon do? Like, what was his job in the war? And she said he was a radio man. And so that is where Leon came from. I always like to honor people in my books, and I think that makes them feel more special to me, and I hope they feel special to you. Um, but just know that like every character is honoring some living person that I've met in some way. Well, another character that I loved, and I, all the characters in Denver were just so well flushed out, and I want to, a book about each of the characters, please, <laughs> so when you get around to that. But one of them was... Um, your, the Aunt, Aunt Maria Josie was her anglicized name, Aunt Maria Josefina. She was incredible, and I know she's based on a real character. She was a, a lesbian, fiercely independent, had lived through her own trauma, and was now the maternal figure for Luz and Diego. So, so talk about the real character that inspired Maria Josie. Yeah, so Maria Josie, um, she just announced herself as the matriarch of this novel. And I was like, this is badass. I have this butch lesbian matriarch. Like, this is so cool. Um, so my godmother is 84 years old. Um, she's lived her whole life as an openly queer woman. And she worked as an electrician at Rocky Flats. And she dressed in more masculine clothing. And this was like the person that took care of my religious upbringing. So we would go to mass <laughs> every Sunday. And I spent all, you know, tons of my childhood with my, my godmother. But my godmother's auntie, who was also one of my great, great aunties, she was sort of the first in the family um, to live in this openly queer way. And that was my Aunt Mary, who Maria Josie's based on. One of the most interesting things about her as a figure in the family is that we would not be in Denver without her. So a man had gotten her pregnant in their town in Southern Colorado, just like in the novel and he would not claim the baby. And instead of just sitting there and taking it, um, Maria, my Aunt Mary walked north. She hitchhiked, she, and then she started to bring all the siblings up to the city. And so I really wanted to honor her because without her existence and without her migration, we would not be here today. 
there's so much in this book, and I, I genuinely mean it. It is a book that you will read and reread and, and find new elements to enjoy as you do a reread of it. And we're so delighted to be speaking with Callie today live at the bookstore. We are live in front of a crowd at the Boulder Bookstore. But we're going to say goodbye to our radio audience right now. But please do join us for the podcast only after hours at the Radio Book Club. We'll have more conversation with Callie. And, uh, questions from the audience too but as we always do at the end of each broadcast we announce what we are reading for the next month so for september arson who are we reading we'll be reading alexandra kleeman with her novel something new under the sun and this is set in the near future california which is almost uninhabitable due to ravages of climate change that doesn't seem that far off so it could be really a scary read well, you can catch that on the fourth Thursday of September at 9 a.m. on KGNU. But don't forget, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and you're going to get bonus content in conversation with Callie fajardo Einstein, who has been our guest this month at the Radio Book Club. Thank you, Callie. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>